1: FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the High Court's historic judgment on activating Article 50 divorce talks and Mark Carney's decision to stay at the Bank of England until 2019. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, David Allen Green, our legal commentator, Jane Croft, law correspondent, Martin Wolfe, our chief economics commentator, and Chris Giles, economics editor. Thank you all for joining. So, Theresa May's Brexit plans have come to a halt this week. The High Court dramatically ruled that the Prime Minister is unable to trigger Article 50 without the approval of Parliament. This is something that her government has long resisted. Mrs May is going to appeal the decision, but it has opened all sorts of questions. Will MPs block Brexit? Will the House of Lords block it? Will MPs try and force her negotiating hand? Will she still make her 2017 deadline to activate Article 50? And does it mean an early general election? So, George Parker, let's begin with the politics of what happened on Thursday. It was a pretty historic day for Britain, essentially, looking at these judges who had said, in a very thorough, long judgment, which David will talk us through in a moment, that we've got questions about the roles in the judiciary here. What's the mood in Westminster about this unexpected decision?
2: Well I think first of all surprise and although there have been some rumours around that this might happen I don't think anyone really quite imagined it was going to happen and cause this kind of ruction as well. I mean you only have to look at the front pages of some of the British newspapers this week to see how shocked some people have been by the fact that the judges have got involved and what politicians at Westminster essentially thought was a political decision and political process. But what it means now is that uh, Theresa May's got to go back to the drawing board. Her plans and her timetable are in turmoil. She's been hitting the phones on Friday to European leaders to try and explain what she's going to do next. She's determined to keep it on track and to hit that March 2017 deadline for activating Article 50. But between now and then, we could see assuming she loses the case in the Supreme Court, the appeal, weeks and months of parliamentary guerrilla warfare, and it's going to be a very messy thing indeed.
1: So Jane, let's just begin. You were in the High Court yesterday when this came down. As I said, it's 400 years of law citing this. It really is a big substantial thing here.
3: Yeah, it is a really big substantial thing. It's all about prerogative powers, which are the sort of residue of powers once held by the monarch, which are now held by the government. And it's whether or not the government can trigger Article 50 using those powers or whether it needs a parliamentary vote. And basically, that's what the claimant's case was, that the government did need to involve Parliament and get an MP's vote. And the judges backed that. And Lord Justice Thomas, in a very, very clear ruling, said that rights given by Parliament to UK citizens by the European Communities Act in 1972 could not be taken away by the executive government, only by MPs and voting in Parliament. So it's really important.
1: David Allen Green, you've written a lot about this for the FT this week. It really is quite impressive, and it does throw a spanner in the works that if you've said Theresa May doesn't have the power to activate Article 50 anymore. Well, looking
4: at the judgment, like a detective novel, you've got to go straight to the end. Have a look at what the court actually ordered, what they said. The court made what's called a declaration. Didn't make an injunction, not a quashing order, it's a declaration. A declaration of what the law is. And they declared that the law is that the Prime Minister cannot, using the prerogative, issue the notification under Article 50. That's all. Everything else we read into the judgment is by implication. But what that means is the decision to make the Article 50 notification is no longer within the power of the Prime Minister. She might, until she's blue in the face, wish to want to do it. But as a matter of law, she cannot make that notification without parliamentary consent. The court did not explicitly say it had to be by an Act of Parliament. And there are some clever, clever, whiz-bang ideas flowing around about other things like motions or votes of either house and things like that. But the only legally safe way of proceeding now will be an Act of Parliament unless the Supreme Court reverses that decision which I think in the circumstances is less likely than likely.
1: So, just looking at this appeal, the government is and Downing Street are very vigorous. We will definitely be appealing this, and that I believe is going to hit Supreme Court about early December time. You wouldn't give that a particularly good chance of being successful. On the face of it, no. It will be a full Supreme Court, or 11
4: current Supreme Court justices will sit. If the government makes the same arguments again, I cannot see how they can win. If the government puts forward some different arguments and there are some associated with a Oxford academic called John Finnis, that might improve their chances of winning. But the one thing the government could do to improve their chances of winning is to concede that the Article 50 notification could be revoked, because the decision at the High Court proceeded on the basis that once the notification is in there, automatically by operation of law, two years down the line or so, rights will be extinguished. If that's the case, then it has to be done by statute. But politically, that would be almost impossible for the government to concede on. So it's difficult to see how the decision of the Supreme Court could be any different. Jane?
3: Yeah, I think the government backed themselves into a bit of a corner in the High Court by saying that once triggered Article 50 could not be reversed. And I think if they do proceed on a different basis in the Supreme Court, they might have a better chance. But politically, it will be very difficult.
1: And George, if we just look back into the politics of where this is now, that they want to essentially get Article 50 moving as quickly as possible. And as you were saying earlier, this could be long, drawn out debates. What's your view in terms of where MPs are here? Because it's been said there's a majority in the House of Commons for staying in the single market. Do you think MPs are going to want to do that? And do you think MPs would really try and stop Brexit?
2: Well, I think what MPs want to avoid is being pushed into a corner of the kind David was just describing where you have a sort of single yes-no vote on triggering Article 50 because in those circumstances, the House of Commons would actually vote to activate it because no MP wants to be on the wrong side of public opinion on this and to be seen to be thr- frustrating the world of the people. The problem for Theresa May, as David and Jane were talking about here, is that you have the Act of Parliament which can be amended and the amendment to the bill will be the way that MPs and peers in particular in the House of Lords will try to force a soft Brexit option on Theresa May. First of all, they'll want her to publish a green paper of some sort to set out what a negotiating position is. And once we know what it is, then all sorts of parliamentary shenanigans could follow because if people don't like what's in the negotiating mandate, or indeed, I think it's more likely Theresa May will come up with a very bland statement which says virtually nothing at all, then you can see all sorts of efforts being made, not just for sure to publish the mandate but also to specify what's in it to try to keep as you were suggesting Britain in the single market and this could take weeks it could take months And every defeat along the way will sap the authority of the Prime Minister which in the moment is very strong and then of course we get into the wider discussion about whether she might need to have a general election to assert that authority.
1: David, one thing is that Eurosceptic MPs often say is, well, Parliament voted for the referendum six times, therefore we have to respect it. But the key point was the referendum was not a binding vote. So it's more of a political and a legal matter about how the result is interpreted. The judges devoted a number of paragraphs to dealing with the referendum.
4: The judgment was nothing to do with the political significance of the referendum. It was about the means by which the decision of the referendum is put into effect. The problem with the referendum, from a Brexit point of view, is that it was non-binding. It could have been binding. The Scottish independence referendum and the alternative vote referendums had contingency measures on what would happen if there was a yes vote. Was there a reason why it wasn't binding? Well, it's difficult to see looking back at the Hansard. It it looks like not a great deal of thought went into it. (laughs) Heaven forbid. (laughs) It would seem to me that neither side seriously considered it to be an issue. Then there was a government pamphlet which said that the government would implement the decision, which at the time Brexiteers complained about as a misuse of government money, but now has become something like a holy writ for them because it has that wonderful sentence in. But that only binds the government and not Parliament. One interesting legal question is is if the High Court is correct and... It's not open to a prime minister to just send an Article 50 notification. What would have happened had David Cameron done it on the day after the referendum? As Jeremy Corbyn says he should do, and a lot of people were expecting him to. If
1: it's unlawful today, it would have been unlawful then. Absolutely. The other question now, Jane, that we've seen is this attack on the judiciary, which George mentioned earlier, that when you look at the front pages of some of the popular press today, it looks like there's going to be a big battle coming up here between the will of the people, as it would be played on one side, and lawyers on the other side. And that doesn't seem to be a particularly healthy thing for a society that's already pretty divided. Yeah,
3: exactly. I mean, you look at the headlines today, you know, enemies of the people or who do EU think you're kidding and things like this on some of the front pages of the tabloids it's quite extraordinary really and I think that there is an issue about the rule of law the courts have only decided and only given a declaration that's all they've done they've not stopped Brexit they've made it very clear they don't want to interfere in the political process but the tabloids are attacking them for interfering for overreaching their powers all this kind of thing which often does happen when there's a controversial court decision But the courts have stayed within exactly what they have to do, which is basically saying that the process around triggering Article 50 is that Parliament must vote.
1: And George, I think this is the interesting thing we've seen that Eurosceptics spent the referendum campaign talking about empowering Parliament, empowering Britain, sovereignty, Mm -hmm. all these kind of things. And then we've heard some fantastically curious arguments over this week about why that's not the case in this instance. And there's that feeling of that disconnect between the Britain that voted for its MPs and the Britain that voted for Brexit, essentially. It's bringing those two things together. So this comes to the question of a general election. Mm. Do you think it's going to happen?
2: Well, we've had this discussion before, haven't we? It's a good one to keep revisiting. It's a good one to keep, keep revisiting because I think there are many reasons why Theresa May would be wise to have a general election. I think the first thing to say is things are never going to be any better for her than they are at the moment where she's got a, something like a 41 to 27 percent lead over the Labour Party. So why wouldn't she do it? She could go to the country and present herself as being the person who's standing up for the will of the people who voted for Brexit against an obstructive parliament or against the establishment more generally. You could see the argument she could make but I still don't think she will. There are lots of reasons against it. She's instinctively very cautious it would throw the Brexit timetable into some confusion. I think Eurosceptic Tories would be very wary about having an election. At the moment, Theresa May has a mandate to deliver Brexit and she can do it within the life of this Parliament. Why put that at risk? There are some Tory MPs who think the Lib Dems are starting to stir in the South and the South West and they can individually lose their seats. There's a fixed-term Parliament Act to come to terms with. There's a whole load of reasons why I don't think she will. But eventually, you know, if things got bolted down in Parliament and if the House of Lords and the House of Commons make life very difficult for her if her authority looks like it's being damaged badly she may have no choice
1: we've also seen the resignation on friday of a tory mp who has decided that he's going to stand down because he feels he can no longer deal with the government's position on this
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it just shows the extreme tensions that are aroused in the Tory party by Europe. And he's the last person you'd expect to be resigning, really, isn't he? He's a pro-Brexit Conservative MP who, obviously very upset about the fact that Theresa May was not planning to consult Parliament over negotiating position and not planning to have a vote before Article 50 was triggered. Yet he resigns the day after he got his way in the High Court. So it's a strange one, but there are plenty of strange twists along the way. And I think what it tells us about the Tory party is that rather than calming people's nerves, by settling this issue in a referendum, the Tory splits and tensions on Europe are gonna persist for many months and years to come.
1: David, one thing that I think this debate has brought out is the divide between Eurosceptics. There are those who are sort of fruitier end, shall we say, who are the ones who wanted Mark Carney to resign, they're the ones who didn't want Parliament to have a say. Then there's the more considered ones, and I think Stephen Phillips QC is someone you'd probably put in that category who backed Brexit, but feels that he can't accept the way the government's doing it at the moment. Stephen Phillips is a distinguished QC in his
4: own right. He was, in my view, the most sensible and realistic and most impressive of all the Leave parliamentarians in either house. Like Zach Goldsmith, he's in the happy position of being able to do without the job as an MP. And if people like Goldsmith and Phillips are resigning because they can, it just makes you wonder about the MPs who are in the less happy situation to be able to resign their seats. Losing Phillips is a setback because to have somebody like him on board, helping force through Brexit would have been a great asset to the government. He would have been a far better minister at the Department for Exiting in the European Union than perhaps Davis. So yes, for him to go is no doubt significant. The question is, is, is there anybody in parliament now who can say to the prime minister, we have got off to a bad start on Brexit. This sort of put your head down and charge approach no in commentary approach is just not working. Brexit is possible, but it needs to be done in an open and collaborative way, getting people involved. And I cannot see, given the sheer legal, if not political complexity
1: which of, of Brexit, how it can be done in the current approach. And then finally, Jane, I suppose the other person to think about this is uh, Jeremy Wright, the Attorney General, who has been criticised in some quarters for his approach here. What's your take on that? And do you think his position is in any jeopardy?
3: Well, I mean, he presented the case for the government. The Attorney General doesn't often appear in court. He's a QC, he's a criminal barrister, but he's not of the kind of same experience and calibre as Lord Panic, who appeared for the claimants on the other side of of the court. And Lord Panic, incredibly experienced, appeared many times in the Supreme Court, High Court, Court of Appeal, all the European courts. And as I say, Jeremy Wright just isn't of that same calibre of experience. He wasn't the only QC presenting the government's case, but the government didn't do as well as expected during the hearing, and that may have contributed to how badly they actually lost on this case. So it's quite possible the government could look at its legal team for the Supreme Court hearing and maybe sort of you know, assess how it's going to present its case.
1: And then finally, I'm going to put this question to you and all the others, given everything that's happened this week... Do you still think Brexit's going to happen?
3: I'm not convinced it will, to be quite honest. I mean, maybe I'm a bit of an outlier here, but I just kind of think it's looking more and more difficult and more and more complicated to do.
2: George? Well, I don't want to put myself in the stocks for the Daily
4: Mail, so of course I'm going to say I'm not going to be a Brexit denier. I think it will happen. And David? Well, I would say that Brexit is an almost irresistible force because of the referendum result. That cannot be forgotten about. Something's got to be done with that unless it's cancelled out by another referendum or a general election with a mandate. But you have, against that almost irresistible force, the almost unmovable object of practical reality. And it's difficult to see how the sheer problems of Brexit can be shifted unless a far more sensible approach is adopted. And unless that is adopted, it's difficult to see how Brexit can happen.
1: Mark Carney announced this week that he will remain Bank of England governor until 2019. Now, that's a year longer than his original 2018 contract. He said that stability was required through the Brexit process, and he will see the economy through some potentially turbulent times ahead. But he did decline to stay until 2021. There's been a lot of speculation in the city and Westminster about whether it's personal or or professional. Chris Giles, Mr. Carney has been goaded by Eurosceptic MPs for a while for his role during the referendum campaign, but the Prime Minister also seemed to attack him when she talked about citizens of the world and the negative effects of low interest rates and quantitative easing. Do you think it's a surprise that he's going to quit in 2019?
5: I think it surprised most people that he was going to split the difference. People thought it was a binary decision. It was either 2021 or 2018, and so he split the difference, went for 2019. I don't think it's a surprise he's necessarily staying on. He likes London, but I think most of the decision is personal. His family is going back in 2018 as planned, because that's when it suits them for their kids' education. He's going to stay on for another year longer So I think it's mostly personal. I don't think he was particularly pleased with the Prime Minister's comment about citizens of the world aren't citizens of any one country. And I think he took it as a personal attack. I can't believe for a second it was a personal attack. And Mrs May had Mr Carney in mind when she said that. He might think he's more important in her book than she does. But she did
1: attack his policies, you could say, even if it wasn't him personally.
5: I don't even agree with that, actually. I think this was a mess up in Downing Street. She wanted to suggest that some groups that are conservative voters, savers in particular, older people who've got money in savings accounts are particularly hard done by by low interest rates. And then made a, a whole bunch of remarks that didn't really make a lot of sense and weren't checked by the Treasury and she's had to row back on. So I think it's mostly a mess up rather than a deliberate attack on the Bank of England's independence or the way they set interest rates.
1: Martin Wolf, one of the things that's come off the back of this is the question of independence of Bank of England that, as you said, those remarks Theresa May made, which may or may not, as Chris said, been attacked that. But politicians are certainly taking a lot more interest in the Bank of England and its policies and what it's doing now. That can't be a good thing, generally, for the stability of the economy, or do you think the politicians should have a greater say?
6: Well, I must first underline my agreement with what Chris just said about Theresa May's comments. It should be perhaps added that these weren't Carney's policies. They were introduced by Mervyn King, and they have been backed by the overwhelming majority of the Monetary Policy Committee and most of the central banks of the world. So implicitly, she's attacking everybody, which seems a sort of ridiculous position to be in. I think that we mustn't overdo this notion of independence of the Bank of England. It is obvious since the crisis that we've been operating in territory wildly outside what people imagined territory would be when the Bank of England and other central banks were made independent back in the 90s. And they have done a slew of things which were much more controversial because much more difficult things have been occurring. In that situation, politicians are bound to push back. There's bound to be a sort of debate. Well, what are the limits of the independence we're prepared to give them? Should we be rethinking the mandate we've given them? This is sort of more or less inevitable. So I'm not really surprised. And one mustn't go around as though this is sort of virginity is being taken away. But at the same time, they have to be very careful because, as has been clear in this case, you make a remark and then people say, Well, you're the prime minister. Does that mean you're going to change the policy? But of course it doesn't because they haven't thought it through at all. And that gets them into a terrible mess.
5: Unfortunately, I agree entirely with Martin. We can't get into a situation where you cannot criticise central bankers because they're like the Pope or something like this. And it's perfectly legitimate to say that the policy might be wrong sometimes. And when things are as extreme as they have been, there's more need to actually have a good debate about what central banks are doing. So I think it can't be the case that uh, people can't say, well, maybe this policy is wrong, but you want to be very careful about how you couch it.
1: The interesting thing about the timetable, Chris, is that Theresa May is still insisting she's going to activate Article 50 by March 2017 and begin the process of Britain leaving the EU. Now, Mr Carney's got quite a hard deadline of 2019. Now, if that process is delayed, thanks to the court case we talked about earlier, that could see a transition of a new governor in that period when Britain is actually going to leave the EU. And again, it comes back to that stability question, that continuity question, that could be a very tricky situation for the government.
5: It could be and I think it shows how central bankers aren't necessarily brilliant forecasters because it was only on Monday that Mr Carney said he'd stay until June 2019 and by Thursday he was having to explain that if the court case meant that the article 50 process was delayed past June 2019 would he then stay on a few more months or even another year or so to which he gave no answer so he, he basically said I'm not going to even go down that route of discussing it but it does mean that there's quite a possibility that this whole reason for going in June 2019 because we'll have left the EU by then and there'll be a new straightforward and stable landscape is potentially completely nonsense and we'll be in a very very difficult and maybe at the period of most uncertainty just at
6: that time. My view is like that but even more so we've started a process of going into the unknown. It is absolutely inconceivable to me that everything will be resolved even if Theresa May manages to trigger Article 50 on her deadline of March, and this has obviously been thrown up in the air by the High Court. But even if she did, and an agreement to leave were reached two years later, that's just the beginning of the process. Then the economic consequences will be felt real changes would start on trade policy and all these things would only start then. Really, Nothing would have happened into the actual relationship of the UK with the EU before then. That would create all sorts of uncertainty. So if Mr Carney is going to stay here till the British economy has reached a new stable equilibrium, probably have to wait till 2030. Oh, certainly 2025 would be my guess. I mean, that really is my guess. So we're going to have to get used to the idea that we're going to have to have another governor in this process and life will go on and probably another government and possibly another prime minister because that's that's how it is. Her problem is we have at the moment no idea who might be able to replace him. That is the issue I think they should focus on. But if he goes then or goes a few months earlier or a few months later, I don't think it really matters.
1: And finally, Chris, the issue is who is going to replace him? Because from what I understand, there's no a huge amount of succession planning here. There's not an obvious successor. And people will start speculating about that. Who are the people who could potentially replace him in a couple of years?
5: I think it'd be harder to get someone from abroad, given the current state of affairs in the UK. But I think there are some UK candidates. I mean, Andrew Bailey, who currently runs the Financial Conduct Authority and has been at the Bank of England for all his career, is the right age. And so he is patently extremely well qualified to do so. He's not an economist, but the Bank of England governorship is much wider than that these days. So so long as he had a very good economist as a deputy governor, I don't think that would be a problem at all.
6: Do you have any thoughts on that, Martin? We must differ a little bit. I'm inclined to think, I agree with him on the citizens of the world. I think most citizens of the world would feel they're not welcome. And given the battering he's taken from these wretched Brexiters, I think we must be looking at a domestic candidate. But I think that we are going to have a lot of monetary policy challenges, and they're going to be quite difficult and complex. So I would feel happier if the next governor were somebody who clearly had an immense amount of authority in the monetary policy sphere. But it is also true, and this is an argument for Andrew that financial stability might become quite a big issue at some point during this process. So having somebody who understood that too would have merit. There are candidates. It would be a good idea if they became more prominent, more public. One got to know more about them over the next few years so that there was confidence in whoever the replacement was. And obviously the Prime Minister must be absolutely behind whoever the successor is. If it starts off with any doubt about her or maybe it's his selection of this person and confidence in that person, that could be very troubling. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next
1: week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you
4: might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's Chief Foreign Policy Commentator. Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts. And you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays.
0: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
5: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all.